This is a brief passage from the introduction of the 1965 book Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism by Kwame Nkrumah. Nkrumah was a political theorist and revolutionary. He was the first prime minister of an independent Ghana and received his bachelor's degree just a 30-minute drive from where I presently sit, uh, from Lincoln University in Chester County, Pennsylvania. This book is therefore an attempt to examine neocolonialism not only in its African context and its relation to African unity, but in world perspective. Neocolonialism is by no means exclusively an African question. Long before it was practiced on any large scale in Africa, it was established system in other parts of the world. Nowhere has it proved successful, either in raising living standards or in ultimately benefiting countries which have indulged in it. Marx predicted that the growing gap between the wealth of the possessing classes and the workers and employees would ultimately produce a conflict fatal to capitalism in each individual capitalist state. The conflict between rich and poor has now been transferred onto the international scene, but for proof of what is acknowledged to be happening is no longer necessary to consult classical Marxist writers. The situation is set out with the utmost clarity in the leading organs of capitalist opinion. Take, for example, the following extract from the Wall Street Journal, the newspaper which perhaps best reflects United States capitalist thinking. In its issue of 12 May 1965, under the headline of Poor Nations Plight, the paper first analyzes which countries are considered industrial and which backward. There is, it explains, no rigid method of classification. Nevertheless, it points out, quote, A generally used breakdown, however, has been recently maintained by the International Monetary Fund because, in the words of an IMF official, the economy, the economic demarcation in the world is getting increasingly apparent. The breakdown, the official says, is based on simple common sense. In the IMF's view, the industrial countries are the United States, the United Kingdom, and most Western European nations, Canada, and Japan. A special category called other developed areas includes such other European lands as Finland, Greece, and Ireland, plus Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. The IMF's less developed category embraces all of Latin America and nearly all of the Middle East and non-communist Asia and Africa. In the words of the backwards countries are those situated in non-colonial areas. After quoting figures to support its argument, the Wall Street Journal comments on the situation. The industrial nations have added nearly $2 billion to their reserves, which now approximate $52 billion. At the same time, the reserves of less, de less developed groups not only have stopped rising, but have declined some $200 million. To analysts such as Britain's Miss Ward, the significance of such statistics is clear. The economic gap is rapidly widening between a white, complacent, high bourgeois, very wealthy, very small North Atlantic elite and everybody else. And this is not a very comfortable heritage to leave one's children. Everybody else includes approximately two-thirds of the population of the earth, spread through about 100 nations. There is, this is no new problem. In the opening paragraph of this book, of his book, The War on World Poverty, written in 1953, the British labor leader, Mr. Harold Wilson, summarizes the major problem of the world as he saw it. For the vast majority of mankind, the most urgent problem is not war or communism or the cost of living or taxation, it is hunger. Over 1.5 billion people, something like two-thirds of the world's population, are living in conditions of acute hunger, defined in terms of identifiable nutritional disease. This hunger is at the same time the effect and the cause of the poverty, squalor, and misery in which they live. Its consequences are likewise understood. 
The correspondent of the Wall Street Journal previously quoted underlines them, quote, Many diplomats and economists view the implications as overwhelmingly and dangerously political. Unless the present decline can be reversed, these analysts fear the United States and other wealthy industrial powers of the West face the distinct possibility, in the words of the British economist Barbara Ward, of a sort of international class war. What is lacking are any positive proposals for dealing with the situation, and that the Wall Street Journal's correspondent can do is to point out that the traditional methods recommended for curing the evils are only likely to make the situation worse. From the Shadow Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Uh, Super producer Carl is monitoring proceedings from a remote secure location. And our guest today is Pascal Robert. Pascal is a writer and political commentator, as well as the co-host of This Is Revolution Podcast. He is also an expert on the history and politics of Haiti. His recent essay in Newsweek is titled, A Black Political Elite Serving Corporate Interest is Misrepresenting Our Community. I am delighted to welcome the great Pascal Robert to Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hello, Pascal. Thank you for having me, Robert, and I appreciate being here, and greetings to your audience as well. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you took the time over the holiday weekend. I, I hope you had a, a pleasant Thanksgiving. I, I hope you enjoyed yourself. It was, a, it was an interesting weekend. It was pretty good. <laughs> so... Um, Recently, you released a special commentary uh, on uh, This Is Revolution, uh, the Mau Mau Hour, and it began by providing a historical context uh, behind sort of uh, your, your piece talking about present-day uh, politics. Uh, and this is why I selected the passage from uh, Nakoma's book. Um, could you reflect on that a little bit and, and sort of help build that foundation before we get into your new Newsweek piece? Sure. The subject for the... Uh... The segment that we have when I do my, I guess you would say a monologue, or my kind of presentation is called the Mau Mau Hour. And I'm well aware that Mau Mau was the British uh, pejorative word for the Kenyan Liberation Front, but it was also the terminology used by Malcolm X as well. And it, you know, it was a suggestion of one of our uh, cohorts on our show, Gene Boshlan. He was like, let's just call it the Mau Mau Hour. And I'll say, okay, it sounds catchy and interesting. So uh, for those who are not aware of that particular interest, you know, nuanced history about the name and the terminology. But uh, the theme of the actual program was the question of class warfare, not just generally class warfare, but a particular kind of class warfare was an analysis of the reality that uh, when you're looking at the condition of the global South, particularly black, brown diaspora, particularly the African diaspora in general, in consideration of the warning of stalwarts of the stalwarts of the movement period, such as Kwame Nkrumah, Amilcar Cabral, and Fanon, who all discussed and warned and forewarned against the rise of a neo-colonial bourgeoisie or a comprador bourgeoisie which would be people that would arise within the former colonized nation states who would be of the same ethnic makeup as the majority of the masses, but because of their either elite pedigree or, or proximity 
the power of the former colonial uh, masters in those states would kind of act as functionaries of the oppressive forces and pretty much effectively carrying out the agenda of those oppressive forces within the context of the post-colonial nation states in those countries. And we see that reality pretty much all over in the Black diaspora. Though I am very hesitant to make the the analogy that is very common amongst my, my comrades who are revolutionary nationalists about internal colonial theory, about how the United States condition for Black Americans, or that they are an internal colony, and that, you know, they have a comparable bourgeoisie. Uh, you know, I'm very hesitant to make that same exact metaphor for a variety of reasons rooted in political economy and the way class is stratified in this country. I will acknowledge that there is a race management cohort that has developed in the United States that has always existed really since the 19th century with uh, the rise of certain figures like Booker D. Washington. Even before him, there were black pastors and ministers that were negotiating with the uh, Lincoln administration about the plight of black Americans uh, afterwards. But the notion of having an undemocratic kind of race management elite, either individual or cadre, who undemocratically uh, deal with the uh, aspirations, political, social, and otherwise, of uh, the Black majority, while in reality acting to uh, implement the agenda of the American political establishment or the ruling class, and are generally chosen because of their more likely willingness to do so, one does not have to stretch the imagination to make a kind of analogy between the rise of the, the, the domestic black political class in the United States and the neo-colonial, neo-colonial bourgeoisie or the comparable bourgeoisie, if you will, in uh, post-colonial Africa, Caribbean, Latin America, pretty much all over the uh, global South. So what my special was, the Mama Hour that I last did, was on the subject of is it time to heighten the contradictions of this class duplicity and engage in class warfare? Uh, And I meant internal class warfare between uh, the black and brown working class and poor who are disadvantaged by the collaboration with this petit bourgeois class and the forces of empire, power, and capital, and a rigorous kind of engagement with them that doesn't have to be violent, would hope would we prefer that it would not be, in which their complicity and duplicity is uh is challenged, attacked virulently, and that the charade of racial unity and racial kinship should be pierced to basically uh ostracize them for their role as collaborators with empire and capital. And one of the things that I did mention in the program was the uh the, the possible conundrum that would arise in attempting such type of class warfare in a period of time in which we see that the reactionary right wing of American capital and global em- capital and empire is ascendant internationally and domestically. And I did inquire that would it actually make a more logical, strategic 
move to try to create some kind of popular front with these uh, uh, collaborators, black and brown collaborators, comparable bourgeoisie, black political class, neocolonial types, neocolonial bourgeoisie types in the face of the potential threat of reactionary nationalism? Or would they simply be an obstacle to being able to clarify the potentiality, the potential threat that that constellation presents itself to those respective communities? And my general position would be that I'm not a particular fan of popular front strategies. I find that they end up always having the left or anyone to the left of the liberals and neoliberals hoisted on their petards at the end. And uh, generally, I believe that the way to go forward was to engage in a rigorous internal class warfare domestically and globally in black and brown communities to really extricate these individuals for their collaborative war with capital and empire and uh, do so in a way in which the contradictions of their, their capacity to leverage racial unity and symbolism and, and identity and role modeling ideology that facilitates their, their ability to basically be, you know, tools of those oppressive forces and renders, renders such capacity obsolete. Yeah. Before, and, and I want to, I want to try to drill that down to some local, um, some local things that we're doing. So I can kind of make a stark kind of, you know, you know, make that contradiction as stark as it possibly can be. But before we do that, um, you start your piece in Newsweek talking about, um, what supports sort of these functionaries is a media narrative uh, that pretty much everybody buys into. And um, that's, that's another aspect of this. And I'd like you to just speak on that uh, for a few minutes before we dive into some details uh, about how that just sort of, I think the word you use is flattened, uh, flattened and sort of uh, neutralizes almost um, this effort uh, to, to heighten the contradiction and then, and, and, and build, uh, build some sort of class, uh, struggle against against these folks. Yeah, I think part of the problem that we have, right, is the conundrum of particular popular culture and media and the media establishment and the utility of the way race is dispatched in popular media, corporate news, and otherwise. Uh, if we are in agreement that one of the one of the natures of uh, domestic capitalism is the United States is in the way that it relegates uh, poor and working class of black and brown people to disproportionate labor redundancy. Now, my argument I'm not, is not saying that only black and brown people are relegated to labor redundancy, because actually, by the sheer numbers, there are more whites that are relegated to labor redundancy. But in order to maintain the cohesiveness of the overall economic paradigm of capitalism and make sure it functions without the potentiality of major domestic rebellions over segments of the white poor and working class, the illusion and charade and conceptualization of poverty being relegated to blackness is permeated through the, the superstructure of American society, particularly through media, popular culture, and otherwise. One of the consequences of that kind of uh, projection of racialized identity for Black people is that it kind of creates this binary in terms of the minds of the people who concern, consume that media, that Black people are either Jay-Z and Oprah Winfrey, 
or they are some kind of manifestation of a thugged out, you know, trap house crack dealer who, you know, got four baby mamas with 15 kids and so on and so forth. And, or maybe an athlete, star basketball player who, you know, comes out of the hood, listens to rap music, so on and so forth. So what ends up happening is that we have a very, very, very limited, I was doing myopic, very limited, limited vision of the complexity and variety of black life in America. And it kind of renders black life to this really kind of cartoonish kind of uh, uh, spectacle. Everything is a spectacle. Black people are reduced to spectacle of, you know, misery and suffering or excessively outlandish wealth that is oftentimes used as an excuse to say, it can't be that bad. Look at LeBron James. I mean, oh, my God. And my argument is not to make the statement that, oh, it's that bad for all black people. It's obviously not. But what that masks is the reality that, you know, we do have large numbers of working class and poor black people who do make up of the majority. Most black people are working class or working poor, uh, as in most white people are. Uh, surprise, surprise. But uh, because the perception that permeates the media relegates black people to these like super rich entertainers or completely lumping underclass, underclass, you know, socially outcast, you know, problems, there lacks the capacity to uh, demonstrate humanity of what black social conditions are in America in that, like any other group and ethnic group, there are varieties of class. Yes, comprehensively, black folk have more, have less wealth in aggregate than whites, but of course, one of the main reasons that is because the top 10% of white people have so much more wealth than everyone, but they also have 75% of white wealth when the top 10% of blacks have 76% of white wealth, which illustrates that most blacks and whites below that top 10 to 20 percentile are basically you know working class schlubs with not much wealth at all. But because, again, we are so interested in demonstrating the disparities as opposed to the commonalities, because that's become the new intellectual industrial complex in since the 2008 crash, talking about disparities, well, almost as in a way to kind of dis, to, to dissuade black and brown communities from ever coming to any kind of class consensus with working class whites. Because there's always this kind of focus on disparity and all of that, the extremes of the black condition are what are always... Uh, pushed the, the ultra ultra super rich and the completely totally you know castigated poor and there are you know there are large numbers of very poor destitute members of the black community there are large disparities for example in homelessness and you know in all types of uh, social dislocation but those problems come from historical ways in which black people are disproportionately and have been for quite a long time relegated to labor redundancy. Neither is it because of some kind of genetic, biological, or cultural failing of blackness. It's a product of actual, the way in which capitalism mandates poverty. But as a consequence of this perception, no one understands that, you know, we have 
you know, just like in, in you know the overall dominant white America, I think it's something like 31% of whites are college educated. We have something like 23 to 24% of African Americans are college educated. You know, a small cadre of those are college educated professionals. And what that flattening of black life, which is the terminology I, I use, does is it denies the reality that just like in any other social uh, group of people in America, there are class tiers in black America that have social, political, and economic consequences in the way black life is shaped and formed. And the un- the inability of most Americans to realize these class multi-level stratifications obscures most black people, most white people and black people to the role in the way in which class is used to pretty much l- leverage black politics to the behest and at the beckoning of capital, big business, finance capital, and ultimately neoliberals, neoliberalism and the, the its consequence, which is marketization and privatization. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to uh, quickly summarize three sort of grassroots efforts that um, people in our world have been working on locally and uh, and what we're up against and, and try to... Um, Try to, to 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 note that what we're up against is not um, it's not a it's not a coincidence that these things are happening. So the first one is uh, uh, we've been working on it for a couple of years, a tenants' bill of rights, and this tenants' bill of rights would provide a right to counsel uh, for everybody in an eviction dispute uh, and and sort of level the playing field there. Uh, that actually legislation on a state level looked like it was going to pass, and it failed by. One vote, uh, a a representative called Stephanie Bolden, uh, who was a yes vote, turned to a a no vote. Um, in the Wilmington in Wilmington City, uh, we've been trying to get a civilian review board uh, to have civilian review of police misconduct. Um, <clears throat> that got down to the wire, and now amendments have been offered to water down this in the interest of corporate real estate. And the city council member uh, who is uh, pushing the amendments to water this down is Chris Johnson. At the state level, we're trying to reform. Uh, we have a very draconian uh, police officer's bill of rights uh, that allows for secrecy, uh, for the police to investigate police, uh, for records to stay uh, secret and all of that type of thing. We've been pushing for just minimal reforms to that uh, for three, four years now. Um, these reforms need to go through a multi-layer committee process that's headed by a state representative and a retired police officer, uh, Franklin Cook. Um, those three individuals uh, are all black politicians. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, uh, uh, reading your piece, that was, they were the first three people that came to my mind as sort of functionaries uh, and race management elite. Um, but based on your piece and based on those things, I'd just like you to, ha- to, to speak to that aspect of it, um, the, 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 the politicians who, uh, who are, uh, I don't want to say co-opted, uh, but that are part of. I, was, the, I wouldn't say co-opted. I said they're, they're playing their class. They're, they're fulfilling their class interests. Right. Yes. They correct. They have a class interest, and and they are uh, are fulfilling it. But what it but it gives people a um, it gives people an eye. It 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 it's further obscures and neutralizes. Uh, I think a, a lot of the work that. Um, some of the grassroots people are trying to do, uh, but I'm I'm, ju- I'm interested to to hear your uh, your thoughts about those specific situations, and also maybe just sort of flesh out a little more uh, of the uh, the premise of the Newsweek piece. 
Well, in the three specific examples that you gave me, which is, by the way, a very normal, normal cycle of behaviors that you see in the black political class. And let's make this clear. The black political class, as I mentioned in the piece, is not just elected officials, but not even the ones that are just elected officials. We're not just talking about federal on the federal level. There is a black political class in every state and every municipality where you find relatively significant numbers of black and brown people. Right. This is not just a phenomenon that you see with the Congressional Black Caucus or 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 the uh, small the, you know the Minority Small Business Administration. This is a phenomenon that you see everywhere in America, where you see some relatively significant numbers of black and brown people. And I'm glad you brought up this example in your locality because this is part and parcel normative behavior for the black political class, particularly in the post-civil rights era. And one of the reasons, because some people may ask, was like, well, what exactly distinguishes the way in black, which black elites function from any kind of white elites? Can't you make the argument this is exactly how the quote-unquote white political class functions? And let me make a very important distinction as to why the manifestation of the black political class demonstrates a particularly noxious conundrum for poor and working class black people. Because the black political class is able to leverage the charade of uh, racial kinship politics, i.e. it's all us black folk against the white man, i.e. you know, I marched with King so I know what y'all need, i.e. I know the community, y'all are my people, y'all can't trust what those white progressives are telling you they're going to sell you out. Because they are able to leverage this fantasy of racial kinship, and for example, in the three, in the three uh, particular examples that you brought up, I would almost absolutely bet that when pressed on these policy considerations of these three black politicians, they will say things like, I know my community, people in my community don't want this. Oh, we've done polls and y'all don't know black folk like we do. Y'all are a bunch of gentrifiers or y'all don't represent the community. I know this. All types of ways to shore up their racial bona fides or quote unquote inside knowledge on the essential kind of like almost metaphysical black identity that they believe they're speaking for that they seem to be so in tune with when in reality they are illustrating these policy choices possibly allegedly because their pockets are getting lined from the donor class in by the way in order to use their racial affinity to give cover for such type policies. Let me give you an example. I wrote a piece. It was in Black Agenda Report, where I often write. It was also in another publication, publication called uh, allhiphop.com, which is like a popular hip-hop magazine online. The title was the piece of the piece, excuse me, was uh, Thanks to the Congressional Black Caucus, 
Remy from House of Cards is real. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Netflix television special, House of Cards, House of Cards is a, was a television show that was revolving around uh, a high-ranking con- con- U.S. congressman who had very, very venal uh, political aspirations who wanted to be president. He was very, very kind of, uh, you know, morally bankrupt, still would do anything he could, double dealing, so on and so forth. And he has this uh, black former congressional aide of his turned to a lobbyist whose name is Remy, paid, played by uh, Mahershala Ali, the actor. And Remy becomes a lobbyist who is unscrupulous, totally kind of degenerate, represents this company called Sandcorp, which is like an international kind of anti-environmental, like this really dirty dealing business, the business practitioner, you know, Remy does all kinds of, you know, questionable, just immorally, just treacherous stuff to maintain his relationship with uh, the character, the, 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 uh, the white U.S. congressman in question. And uh, he just, he just, illustrates just the complete scumbaggery of the uh, the lobbying industry, but he happens to be black. The premise of the article is about how, in the early 1980s, staffers, former congressional black, black caucus staffers, left working as congressional staffers for the Congressional Black Caucus to become lobbyists. And they created an organization. I believe it's called the Martin Wash. I forgot the name of the organization, like the Washington Mutual Fund or something. It was a it was a Washington D.C. based black lobbyist organization that was designed to help effectively push the career aspirations and the business deals of of uh, black black lobbyists were former congressional staffers. Now you would think, you know, there are many black folk who always say, oh, like, what we need is black, we need more lobbyists, we know more black lobbyists to negotiate our issues. Well, surprise, surprise, we have a whole cadre of black lobbyists. But what you will not be, well, I wasn't surprised to find, but what most black people will be surprised to find is that who do they lobby on the behalf of? They lobby on behalf of the same corporate forces Banks, finance, uh, hedge funds, the same corporate forces that ground black and brown people to powder, and as well as most working class white people to powder, while leveraging their relationship with the Congressional Black Caucus and the racial bona fides of the Congressional Black Caucus being the conscious of the Congress playing up on civil rights notions of the place of justice, that because they can leverage that, it puts the Congressional Black Caucus and these black lobbyists in a position where they can more effectively, understand this, more effectively push for corporate-friendly policy because they become a bit of a linchpin in the congressional process since they're able to leverage the goodwill that they have been assumed to have because of their proximity to civil rights credentiality. And as a result, result, it makes them the kind of ultimate poison pill. 
Yeah, I, I, you mentioned in your piece uh, a bit how, you know, the the political elite uh, can can focus on non-material sort of symbolic things, and that sort of gets, I don't know, laundered through um, sort of other elites, whether it be the black church, um, business leaders, uh, historically black colleges and universities, and we never get to real economic redistribution, real economic class politics, because the wins, the quote-unquote wins that you do get um, are just sort of... um, ephemeral and 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 uh, and symbolic and and the other side of the elite uh the the other side of the of the coin uh sort of gives those uh you know allows those to be taken as victories when they're really not victories at all correct correct so you end up getting celebration of the first black this the first black that you know the first black business to own this the first that oh you know you know kamala harris the first black, you know, slash Indian slash whatever member, you know, a member of you know, vice president, you know, Chucks and Pearls and celebrating her sorority membership. She went to an HBCU. All of this really got Juneteenth. I'm like, oh, Juneteenth becomes the That's holiday. the biggest oh, one. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And all that. All of this really shallow, vapid nonsense. While at the same time, these individuals are doing everything possible to deny black people things like a federal jobs guarantee, you know, health, you know, universal health care, you know, uh, you know, uh, child, you know, student loan forgiveness, you know, free college education or or any other type of range of policies, pro-union policies, any other type of range of policies that would ameliorate the uh, economic exploitation of working class and poor people get chucked out the window in exchange for all of this symbolic vapid nonsense that is uh, pushed on the the uh, the majority of black folk as being a signs of progress and it cannot be underestimated the role of the ever duplicitous black media establishment, I call majority the black shattering class, in being vent- racial ventriloquists of their own for this kind of corporate friendly politics of symbolism. Be- I.e., well, for example, perfect example is that when uh, the debate was being leveraged as about as a uh, relative to who would be Joe Biden's vice president, uh, you know, people were saying that he was going to choose a woman. Literally, a group of uh, corporate black media female personalities came together they put together some kind of like slick youtube advertising saying if joe biden doesn't choose a black woman then it's a wrap the community will not stand by him and i'm like who charged these corporate shills to be spokeswomen for any community when in reality, what they want is their own venal desires to have a symbolic representative of their class interest in politics adjacent to Biden in the White House, i.e. Kamala Harris. And they want to feel a sense of vindication and validation. They can say, like, oh, we have we have one of our sorority sisters in the White House. She went to an HBCU. Oh, you know, Kamala, Kamala. And that 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 cartoonish project is collapsing on them as we speak. And now they're trying to find other ways to shore up her benefits. It's the sexism and the racism. That's why she's polling so poorly and all of this other superficial crap. When in rea- when the actual situation was that this woman was never popular, popular 
among black communities in the first place. She was polling worse than not only Bernie Sanders, but Elizabeth Warren and everyone else in the primaries. To the point yeah. that yeah, she got absolutely no traction uh, in a in a in a broad primary. You know, all the, from from Bernie and 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 you know however many people were in it, a dozen or so, got absolutely no traction. Um, but as a symbolic gesture, uh, you know, we have we had that ticket, and I, and it goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I want to touch on I I want to uh to to. Read the, the the last bit of the piece here, and and also uh, bring up uh, a topic of sort of how how we go forward. Um, this is how you close it. Uh, the race management establishment must be demoted from its position, brokering the affairs of the majority of black people who are the victims of corporate friendly politics, which the black political class has been supporting for several decades. The only way this black politics of containment can be remedied is for working class and poor black people to join a multi-racial coalition with those in similar class positions who are not blinded by racism. Now, that seems pretty clear to me. I, I, that seems pretty understandable. Um, but the reason I, I read that first is because you do uh, cite um, Adolf Reed in the piece. Uh, I went and read that Three Tremays. I had never read it before, and that was a, an excellent sort of support supporting piece of documentation. Um, but as uh, Reed has been famously embroiled in many controversies of this nature, I, I think your thoughts would be helpful <coughs> around this pejorative of class reductionist. And I, it seems to me, just in those two sentences I read from your conclusion, pretty plainly stated that you know, if, if somebody's not an, a, a, an overt racist, we can we can have a, uh, you know, a, a multiracial uh, class project to start to pull power back from anybody who's a corporate, you know, sort of, a, you know, a, you know, a corporate manager. Um, but I would like you to speak a little bit um, on that and and how you how you are able to sort of articulate um, when when you do get that pejorative of class reductionist, or the the conversation goes in that direction, how you take that on and how you how you defend it? Well, the first first of all, uh, the first thing I, I say is that uh, anyone who's on the left who believes in dialectical materialism or who necessarily may call themselves a Marxist, I use Marxism as a tool to challenge capitalism. I wouldn't consider myself an orthodox Marxist or anyone on the left who understands that the condition of history throughout time is oftentimes motivated by economic and material realities. For them to be trapped into the notion of being called a class reductionist means that they're not good at their own left politics. Because if you were good at your own left politics, the first thing you would say, and which I think is a fact, we've had economists from Jack Rasmus all the way to... Uh, Richard Wolf on our show, who've cooperated this themselves, is that in American capitalism or Western capitalism or world, but definitely in American capitalism, there is a particular utility to the way in which races use that disadvantage of Black people and relegates them to, as I stated earlier, labor redundancy. And all of the social harm and dislocation and fracturing that affects Black people from criminal activity to, to uh, family fracture, family dislocation, drug addiction, and all of the other social ills is a consequence of, uh, imp, you know, immiseration into poverty functioning and being facilitated by that disproportionate rendering 
to labor redundancy. All right. And also as well as the, the, the socialization of black people in their fixture around urban crime being popularized as well within those social spaces. So the, the argument that has been made that, you know, this is a post-civil rights phenomenon is belied by the fact that if you actually read the scholarship of black writers like E. Franklin Frazier or even Du Bois in the 19th century talking about the submerged 10th, you realize that uh, tropes about, quote-unquote, the pejorative underclass black dysfunctionality have existed in the American consciousness since the 19th century. All right? What has happened is that with the rise of deindustrialization and the, you know, the, the economic demobilization of black labor post-civil rights where domestic sharecropping and domestic worker status was no longer necessary, it increased the numbers of blacks who were relegated to redundancy and as a result facilitated in crime that metastasizes and grows the need for mass incarceration, as well as the political rebelliousness of the late 60s being a factor as well. So the point I would say is that when anyone would say that someone on the left is a class reductionist, my response is that, well, what class of, what people as a class disproportionately suffer more from capitalism than anyone else? And the answer is black people. So how do you call me a class reductionist when my politics are actually rooted in addressing the needs of the community that's most and most effectively neutralized by capitalism when you're talking about a race-based politics that does nothing but put pockets in elites, usually because these are elites, college-educated folk who say that, like themselves, MSNBC hosts, Atlantic writers, and so on and so forth. The reason they respond with class reductionists is because their race reductionist politics creates an economic paradigm that we've had since the civil rights movement for 50 years where black policy is racial democracy, as political scientist Preston Smith demonstrates, that does nothing but benefit black middle class and elite types or those who are proximate to that class, while unfortunately the black poor and working class who would benefit from social democracy or policies rooted in their political economy of being poor and working class are left under the bus. And this is one of the reasons why we've had a proliferation in growth in the internal black wealth gap. Since the civil rights movement, people always want to talk about the wealth gap, the wealth gap. How can we want to talk about the wealth gap that metastasizes internally within the black community in the post-civil rights era? Yeah, and this is a way I think going back to the going back around to the way the narrative is told through the media and through popular culture. Uh, I, I think you 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 tweeted something out uh, last week about Tanahasi Coates and how sort of that as a as an example. I said, I said besides Trump, American <laughs> politics suffers today because for ten years we all went to the Tanahasi Coates School of American History. Yes, and 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 I think this is why you see. Uh, Coates in his time, or you know, whoever you want to, uh, you know, Ibrahim uh, uh, Kendi, or whoever you want to say, those those are the uh, are the folks that are known sort of uh, in in the media. Where uh, Adolf Reed, when you mention his name, you know, generally speaking, no one knows who he is. Um, so I kind I kind of circle I kind of circle back to the media on that one. I, I don't want to specific because I mean, Black Agenda Report, what publication I've been writing about, we've been talking about Bruce Dixon, rest and soul, have been talking writing about this 
for 15 years. I mean, we've been right. covering about the way in which the, the black media elite and the black political class, which they, they call pejoratively the black misleadership class, has been for years trying to create this kind of race reductionist narrative that really is an elite politics, a black elite politics that has nothing to do with the material conditions of the majority of black people. And, uh, you know, Adolf has definitely been ringing that alarm for a lot longer. I mean, he's doing it for almost 50 years. But yep. it is an understanding that exists on the black left. And one of the things that mainstream American media does not want you to know is that there is still existed a black left that challenges the condition of black people on material grounds because unfortunately they want to create this consensus that black folk are totally down with the sham symbolic elections of people like Obama and Kamala Harris, which do nothing but replicate neoliberal neoliberal capitalist property relations vis-a-vis the condition of not only Americans overall, but black people specifically. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, Pascal, I, I, I thank you so much for uh, taking the time on a weekend uh, to come talk to us. Um, I, I, I urge everyone um, to, at, at the very least, start following This Is Revolution. I love what you guys do. This um, is Revolution pre- Podcast. This is Revolution Podcast. Yeah. This, I, I, I'm, I, knowing that uh, you know, we put out one a week, uh, knowing, understanding that the, the, sheer, uh, the sheer volume of stuff that you're able to put out at the level that you're able to produce it uh, actually is, uh, it, it amazes me. Uh, I Shout out to Jason, I guess. He's not on here. I, I know he does a lot of the back. Yeah, and our friend Gene Bajlan, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's been on uh, our show. But it, it really is an excellent, you, you get, you get a, a taste of all of the stuff we just talked about. Uh, and some 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 pop culture, some economics. Um, you guys had on um, uh, Steve Paxton, uh, who just uh, wrote a book about Soviet history and Marx, and, and we spoke to him too. There's there's a lot of there's, I, I'm I'm incredibly impressed with all the the sheer volume of great content you guys can put out on a regular basis. It's fantastic. I appreciate that, man. We're trying, man. We're trying. Hopefully, we can keep up to those standards and go even beyond them. Yeah. Well, the piece in Newsweek is called A Black Political Elite Serving Corporate Interests is Misrepresenting Our Community. Um, The author is our guest today, Pascal Robert. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate that, man. Of course. Have a good one.